Well, let me first say welcome to you all to this, which is the first and I suppose the inaugural Oakshot Memorial Lecture. We hope there will be more of them. I have a number of tasks to perform. The first, apparently, is to introduce myself, which only needs to be to say that I'm Kenneth Minogue and I'm chairing this meeting, I presume, because I was a colleague and friend of Michael Oakshot's as a, as a member of the government department for many years. Um, I have a number of people to thank. One of them, of course, is the donor. Um, he prefers to remain anonymous, but he's here this evening. And I can also say this evening that we're happy to have Simon Oakeshott, who is Michael's son, also in the audience here. Um, the last bit of business is to say that David Willits, our lecturer, will be speaking for about 30 minutes and that his title is The Ideas That Are Changing Politics. There will be a similar period afterwards in which he has agreed to reply to questions and comments, so long, of course, as they are kept reasonably crisp. This leaves me with two things to do. The first is to say something about Michael Oakeshott himself, and the second is to introduce David Willits. Academics are soon forgotten by their students, but they live on in their books. Michael Oakeshott was professor of political science here at the school from 1951 to, I think, 1968. His appointment caused a considerable stir because he succeeded the dazzling Harold Lasky whose socialist panache was believed to represent the essential ethos of the school. Oakeshott was widely suspected of being a conservative, though he himself believed that any such expression as conservative philosopher or radical philosopher, or indeed any qualification, was a vulgar category mistake. Philosophers cannot be categorized in those terms. In his famous inaugural lecture, called Political Education, he described himself with ironic humility as a skeptic, one who would do better if only he knew how. That lecture is republished along with other essays in Rationalism in Politics and other essays, and I would recommend it to you as a brilliant piece of philosophical argument, exhibiting at the same time a superb command of literary skill. This combination of talents, not widely found at any time, perhaps even more unusual today, is one reason that makes him well worth celebrating. It is in that inaugural lecture, in a much quoted passage comparing politics to steering the ship of state, that Oakeshott most precisely focused the difference between himself and Harold Lasky. Lasky believed that the business of politics was to build a better society. He was, to some extent, a theorist of the Ackley welfare state. Oakeshott thought that a society was a historical entity generating any number of projects of its own, both individual and collective, and that the only thing rulers could really do was to respond to circumstances and to the ways in which every society, in fact, goes on changing quite apart from what the rulers do. He was deeply concerned with the nature of the modern state and with the rule of law. 
Oakeshott is widely held to be the greatest British political philosopher of the 20th century, uh, and some would make even more ambitious claims for him. The middle of the last century was a rich time for political philosophy. Great figures of the time included Eric Vogelin, Hannah Arendt, Leo Strauss, and Karl Popper, himself a notable ornament of the school's philosophy department, though it was called logic and scientific method in those days. These people were all making something eternal out of the travails of that eventual, eventful period. And at the very same time, marvelous to tell, some academics were writing articles lamenting the death of political philosophy. A last remark on this theme. I regard the history of political thought as the seedbed of all the social sciences. What psychologist would not benefit from reading Hobbes? Economists must still read Adam Smith, sociologists Montesquieu and Tocqueville, political scientists Machiavelli, and Hayek thought that Bernard de Mandeville had originated the whole idea of evolution. Unlike those professors who bewitch simple undergraduates with impromptu performances, you know, he spoke for 60 minutes without a note, etc. Uh, Oakeshott nearly always thought out and wrote down what he was thinking in advance, although he did not simply read this material. His lectures were highly elaborated. They've recently been published as Lectures on the History of Political Thought, edited by Terry Narden and Luke O'Sullivan. If you have any interest in the history of political thought, they are well worth looking into. If you do, you will, I think, learn something not only about political thought, but also about intellectual power and precision. But we are here, of course, to celebrate Michael Oakeshott, not to expound him. And we are fortunate that this first Oakeshott lecture will be given by David Willits. Of David himself, the first thing to say is that he is a very notable ornament of the conservative shadow cabinet, speaking these days for education. Indeed, at a very young age, he held ministerial office under John Major as paymaster general. He has written acutely on many issues of contemporary politics and was, for a stretch, director of studies at the Center for Policy Studies. Um, he's written one book on modern conservatism. One notable theme he has explored is the importance in British life of balancing the adventurous character of free enterprise with the depth of inherited civic involvement in public life. He may not soon forgive me for mentioning that his media tag, it's only if you have a media tag which you're anybody these days in politics, his media tag is Two Brains Willits. I greatly look forward to hearing what he has to say, and I ask you to welcome David Willits. Good evening. Well, it's... Uh great honour for me to be invited to give this inaugural Michael Oakeshott lecture. Sadly, I only met Michael Oakeshott once, and that was very briefly. We were introduced. But I have, in preparing this lecture, uh, spoken to people, alumni of the London School of Economics, who do remember going to his lectures in the history of political thought. And it's clear from what they tell me what a powerful 
intellect and what a charismatic lecturer he was. I really only know him, however, through his writing, and Ken referred to that. Uh, perhaps still what sticks in my mind the most is the very first thing of Michael Oakeshott's that I read, which is, uh, perhaps slightly quixotically, his introduction to Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, which still, uh, I think of as one of the best and most lucid accounts I've read of the Leviathan, and perhaps also something that ranges more widely across some of the themes of my lecture this evening. Uh, but thank you again for the invitation. I'd particularly like to thank Richard Sennett for the invitation. Richard gave me a choice. He said uh, it could be the uh, Michael Oakeshott lecture, or it could be the Milliband lecture. Um, and I decided on balance to go for the Oakeshott lecture, and I think that was the right decision. Anyway, here goes. Uh, 30 years or so uh, ago, when uh, Ken and I were both sort of interested in this, the most vigorous and exciting research program in political economy was free market economics. And I can still remember tearing the envelopes off the IEA pamphlets for which I was a student subscriber when I was at university. And the, uh, the excitement of the free market research agenda was palpable. Uh, I still believe that those insights of free market economics are true. But meanwhile, we have, most of us, learnt that free market economics, like patriotism, is not enough. Perhaps the crucial moment was the failure of the Harvard boys to deliver free market capitalism in Russia as the Soviet Union collapsed. It was a powerful reminder that a free market economy can only function in a cultural and moral environment that supports it. There may be a universal human instinct to truck, to barter and to exchange, but to transform that into modern capitalism requires distinctive institutions and values, something which Michael Oakeshott himself well understood. Uh, Marxists argued that capitalism would collapse because of its failure to deliver material wealth, but now we realize that the much more serious challenge is Schumpeter's arguing that capitalism might erode the very non-market values on which it depended. This recognition that there is more to life than markets, and indeed that markets cannot operate in a vacuum, led to a rediscovery of the values of community and compassion. And Margaret Thatcher herself became increasingly aware of these challenges to free market economics in the final years of her premiership. Her response was a Christian one. We obviously, she thought, had religious obligations to our fellow citizens. She would respond to critics of capitalism by citing the parable of the talents or the parable of the good Samaritan. She was appealing to moral principles which she believed had to shape people's lives in a free society, most notably in her address to the Assembly of the Church of Scotland. So her whole cast of mind was actually rather different from what is now called Thatcherism, a world red in tooth and claw in which the devil takes the hindmost. But this misunderstanding of her has led to a hollowing out of the traditions of British conservatism. It has become for many of its critics and defenders alike almost indistinguishable from free market rhetoric mixed with hostility to the state. This is a caricature of the conservative tradition. 
But Margaret Thatcher's religious solution to the challenge of the framework for a free market economy was not going to work in a secular society. What can hold Britain together as a modern secular market economy without either religion or traditional class deference? What else is there? This still seems to me to be the question which conservatives have to answer now that the argument for the free market has largely been won. In my book, Modern Conservatism, published in 1992, I insisted that the conservative tradition placed as much importance on our shared values and our sense of community as it did on the role of private property and free markets. And this emphasis on the importance of community has been at the center of the political debate for the past 15 years. The problem is that the recognition of our need to belong to a society which is more than a marketplace with a flag on top does not get us very far. In part, it's because the idea of community is very hard to pin down, and in part because in this country, where our sense of community is concerned, it seems particularly hard to move from the abstract to the concrete. In the US, they have Christianity playing a much more important role in the national life. Uh, on the continent, there's much greater willingness to accept rules and regulations to protect the institutions of civil society, churches in particular. In Britain, it's much more difficult to be explicit because so much is implicit. We are a club, not a committee. So I tried, in my book, to give a real meaning to this talk of community and to recognize that in Britain, so much of it is implicit. Uh, an understanding of that implicitness, what Michael Oakeshott would call tacit knowledge, means that many conservatives are wary of the ologies. Dr. Johnson did not really trust Hume as a Tory, saying, Sir, he's a Tory by chance, meaning, I think, that Hume reached his beliefs by a dangerously intellectual process. And when Hayek famously explained why he was not a conservative, it was the obscurantism of many conservatives which he objected to. But Margaret Thatcher embraced intellectuals such as Ken Minogue. She probably embraced him literally, who chairs this lecture today. Uh, and I believe that all of us in politics, regardless of our political persuasion, should draw on the most exciting and important developments in thinking about man and society as we tackle this question of what holds us together. And the resource we should turn to is the most dynamic research program since free market economics. I mean the extraordinarily fertile area where game theory, evolutionary biology, and neurology are coming together. There is a flow of books and articles full of fascinating insights and theoretical advances. Every university has its contribution to make. Here at the LSE, you have Brian Barry, Nicholas Humphreys. I have learned from friends such as Paul Klemperer, Jervis Huxley, and Matt Ridley. But in particular, Ken Binmore's book, and it's great to see Ken here in the audience, his book, Natural Justice, seems to me to be of enormous significance. The best place to start is game theory. I was fortunate that when I was studying economics 30 years ago, one of my tutors, the late Michael Backrack, was an early and distinguished proponent. But in general, game theory has suffered from terrible PR. Two geniuses of game theory star in famous films. The inventor of game theory, Johnny von Neumann, was the model for Dr. Strangelove 
acted, of course, by Peter Sellers as a mad Nazi who can barely restrain his arms' indiscriminate urge to give an Hitler salute. John Nash does slightly better with Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind, but the film's one attempt to define the Nash equilibrium gets it wrong. So perhaps it's not surprising if people are, are rather baffled by this strange new discipline, which seems to be dominated by tortured geniuses. But game theory, and I speak as an amateur, I'm aware there are professionals in the audience, but for me as a layman, it's the rigorous study of the logic of human um, or animal behavior in carefully de defined circumstances. Now let me begin with what we all know as the classic game, the prisoner's dilemma. And I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but let's just very briefly uh, go through it. Imagine that two bank robbers are charged with a crime and they're held in separate cells. If they both confess, each gets nine years. If one robber confesses and the other robber refuses to do so, the, the snitch gets off scot-free and his partner gets 10 years. If they hold out and they refuse to confess, they face a minor tax evasion charge and each gets a year. Now, will the two partners, who may have made an understanding and agreement not to betray each other, will they betray each other uh, or will they refuse to confess? Well, what game theorists do is think it through rigorously. Suppose that your partner has confessed. If you stay quiet, you'll end up in prison for 10 years. In that case, the best thing to do is to confess so you only get nine years. Now suppose your partner has stayed quiet. In that case, if you stay quiet, you'll get one year in prison, but if you confess, you can escape altogether. So it does not matter what your partner has done. The structure of the game is such that you will always be better off confessing. Confessing is the best strategy to choose whatever the other player has done. So according to game theorists, the game has only one possible outcome. Both players betray their partners. They both confess, and they end up both receiving a prison sentence of nine years. That is said to be the unique Nash equilibrium of the game. And Nash equilibrium meaning that it's a set of solutions in a game where no one player can improve their position by changing their strategy. It's a unique Nash equilibrium because there is only one such equilibrium. Now, the reason why a prisoner's dilemma is where everyone starts is because that choice between confessing and remaining silent has become a metaphor for our ability to cooperate, to share burdens, if you like, even to be a good citizen. And the implication that we will not be good citizens and that the two partners will not cooperate with each other is what all the fuss is about. And much of the subsequent analysis is about whether this um, outcome is reasonable. Uh, now, the outcome in the simple account that I've offered might seem nasty, but this is a consequence of the payoffs built into the structure of the game. Change the payoffs and you change the game and its outcome. The prisoner's dilemma doesn't really tell us anything very profound about human nature, except perhaps that in some circumstances cooperation is difficult to sustain. And you can actually use the tools of game theory for the opposite effect, to show how cooperation can be sustained. Now I'll come back to the prisoner's dilemma, but there's another game, and again it's a very uh, elementary one, the driving game. And this, we all play this game when we set out on a journey and we decide on which side of the road to drive. And there are two obvious Nash equilibria. We all choose to drive on the left, it's one, 
and we all choose to drive on the right. These are Nash equilibria because it's the best strategy for everyone to stay on the same side of the road. Uh, there's a less obvious third equilibrium, but we'll come back to that. Now, the two, this driving game helps us to understand two of John Nash's ideas. The first idea is that Nash equilibrium is self-reinforcing. Uh, if you assume external enforcement mechanisms, which we all comply with, then you assume away most of the problems which game theory wrestles with. Uh, but life isn't like that. Game theory, one of the reasons why I find it so interesting is it helps us to think what we would do even without such a deus ex machina. In the case of the driving game, I drive on the right because you drive on the right, and you drive on the right because I drive on the right. And none of us can improve our drive home by defecting and driving on the other side of the road. So the equilibrium is self-enforcing. And this self-enforcing feature is a crucial one. Um, now, even, uh, of course, uh, there is also uh, a law, but the self-enforcing nature of the custom that in this country we drive on the left requires very little enforcement by government. The custom polices itself, as anybody choosing to break the custom will rapidly discover. Perhaps we can reinterpret Michael Oakeshott's account of the distilled wisdom imbued in our customs by saying that these time-honored ways possess the self-enforcing property inherent in the concept of a Nash equilibrium. There's one other crucial point from this example. It has more than one equilibrium. In France, it's the custom to drive uh, on the on, uh, not on the left, but on the right. Um, and so this is a second crucial feature that many games have more than one equilibrium. Uh, now, one of the things that a state does is it chooses between these equilibria. It chooses between driving on the left as the system or on the right. In fact, there is a rather uh, little, there is a little known Geneva Convention. The other Geneva Convention, incidentally subscribed to at the same time as the Geneva Convention we're all familiar with, the Geneva Convention on Road Traffic. And this stipulates that all vehic vehicular traffic proceeding in the same direction on any road shall keep to the same side of the road, which shall be uniform in each country for all roads. So there you have it. If you drive the wrong way down a street, you are in breach of a Geneva Convention. And that was a definition of the role of the state. One of the distinctive tasks which a political entity does is to specify on what side of the road you drive. In Sweden, in 1967, the government passed a law so that at 5 a.m. one Sunday morning, they shifted from driving on the left to driving on the right. And there are incidentally on the web some fantastic photographs of Stockholm early that morning with the traffic suddenly moving from one side to the other. This tells us something quite important about what governments cannot and cannot do. Governments can help society pick a Nash equilibrium between competing Nash equilibria that may be available. Um, but the second is that if we try to shift society to outcomes which lack the self-enforcing property of Nash equilibria, we may fail. When politicians propose changes that are not going to form a new Nash equilibrium, we politicians will fail. Um, and a classic mistake, and if I may say so, especially made by people from the left, is to specify an outcome and just assume it's easy to use the mechanisms of government to get there 
even if it isn't a Nash equilibrium. Now, uh, what uh, uh, I think is that uh, there is a legitimate role for government in helping us move to a new equilibrium, and these equilibria may change over time. For example, as social norms change, and legislation may become out of date because it's trying to preserve an old equilibrium which is no longer sustained by public support. Um, perhaps I can quote Sir James Fitzjames Stephen, who put it very well. The sentence of the law is to the moral sentiment of the public in relation to any offence, what a seal is to hot wax. As an example, that's what happened last year with the ban on smoking in most enclosed public places. Imagine what would have happened if the Commons had tried to pass such a law 30 years ago. I very much doubt that such a law could have been enforced, not because Parliament could not have passed the necessary legislation, but because a ban on smoking in public places would not at that stage have been acceptable public opinion. Um, now, what, it was the move in public opinion which enabled government to help us move to a Nash equilibrium. They, they did make mechanism changes to enforce the law, of course, but the role of, of government was primarily to help society coordinate on this new equilibrium. Right. So, uh, in my time, uh, if the game theorists are right, we have seen other examples of this. Profound social changes have taken place. Feminism has transformed the role of women, whilst our toleration of racism has gone through a similar transformation. Uh, laws enacted by Parliament have played their part. The Equal Pay Act, Successive Race Relations Act. However, it was by no means a foregone conclusion that this legislation would do much to bring about any deep-seated changes in, in attitudes or behaviour. Indeed, opponents of this kind of legislation objected on precisely these grounds, that you cannot legislate to change morality. But who can deny that such a transformation has taken place? So, the point I'm making is this, that the self-reinforcing Nash equilibria that persuade us to drive in the left and that helped to sustain the smoking ban, so we all know what would happen nowadays if one of us tried to light up in a pub, are really no different from the norms we absorb we observe on sexism and racism. Driving on the wrong side of the road, lighting a cigarette in a pub, making sexist or racist remarks are all unacceptable in Britain and they are unacceptable for fundamentally the same reason. They are a violation of what the game theorists would call the game of morals that all of us play every day in, every, in all through our lives. And if the enforcement mechanisms are fundamentally similar, uh, so is the role of government. Government has taken a role in these transformations, but it has been moving with the grain of public opinion. Although the police and the courts, to some degree, can be said to stand outside society and enforce the law, they can only do this to a limited extent so long as there is sufficient support for those laws. And I believe that Ken Binmore's book, Natural Justice, formalizes some of these ideas which lie deep in the conservative tradition. When he refers to the gossamer threads of shared knowledge and experience that hold an equilibrium together, he is referring, I think, to the precisely the kind of tacit understandings discussed by Michael Oakeshott. Moreover, he is every bit as insistent as Oakeshott that what appears fragile may be more robust than anything well-meaning planners and government officials may try to replace them with. The self-enforcing property of Nash equilibria mean that attempts to change our institutions may fail 
because those gossamer threads have a strength and a stubborn vitality that frustrates repeated efforts at reform. Now, if, however, there are several different equilibria, government can help us choose between them and how we solve these coordination problems is at the core of our political debate. Conservatives have always understood that we face constraints and that these limit the range of viable social contracts. We can forget that, uh, but we can make mistakes. From my side, from the conservative tradition on the centre-right, we can forget that what was stable yesterday may not be stable today because society has changed. And we may concentrate so much on sustaining the existing social contract that we lose sight of the opportunity to select a better equilibrium. Now, Ken Binmore makes it clear that he is not a conservative. Ken sees himself as a Whig. Uh, his ideas are wide-ranging, and I'm only skating over the surface today, and I must not attribute to him views he does not possess. However, as Hayek found out, explaining that you are not a conservative does not stop us nabbing your ideas. Now, let me revisit the prisoner's dilemma. Even in the rather loaded scenario for prisoners' dilemma. Things look different if we change the game in one crucial respect. Imagine that rather than being a one-off, it's a game that we play over and over again with the same partner in crime. In this new situation, it's possible that it can be a Nash equilibrium for people to cooperate. That if the prisoners were brought back to the same situation again and again, they would have to, the opportunity to punish one another for confessing by confessing themselves in subsequent games. That makes it possible to start enforcing agreements. And Robert Axelrod's book, The Evolution of Cooperation, explored this world of repeated games. And what he did was arrange computer tournaments and found that a stable strategy was a program called Tit for Tat, Tit for tat uh, would cooperate, involve cooperation, if the individual plays it against the computer, you would cooperate with the computer it was playing against, but if you tried to swipe the pot if you're playing for a game of money, it would punish you on a subsequent return. If you reverted to cooperating, it would revert back to. In effect, it would mirror you one turn later. The tit for tat strategy worked. And I can still remember the excitement of reading Axelrod's book, uh, which set out this crucial insight. The prisoner's dilemma can be resolved if instead of one-off, we repeat it over and over again. And Axelrod supported this with some historic evidence. And let me just very briefly um, refer to what I think one of the most striking pieces of evidence he offers, drawing on research by Tony Ashworth, going up to some of the most hellish circumstances that we can imagine, the trenches of the First World War. And what he found is that even in those terrible circumstances, cooperative strategies emerged between soldiers in the two front lines to make life more bearable. Snipers would shoot to miss, because otherwise you'd never be able to get out of the trench. They'd not fire at certain areas marked out by flags. Bombardments would not happen at certain prearranged times, so you could get out of the trench and be relatively safe. You didn't see that shell supply trains coming to the front line. Perhaps I can read you one account from a British soldier. I was having tea with A Company when we heard a lot of shouting and went out to investigate. We found our men and the Germans standing on their respective parapets. Suddenly a salvo arrived that did no damage. 
Naturally, both sides got down, and our men started swearing at the Germans, when all at once a brave German got up and shouted out, We're very sorry about that. We hope no one was hurt. It's not our fault. It's that damned Prussian artillery. <laughs> now, that was called the live and let live system, and it shows how even in those appalling circumstances, with acts of uh, extraordinary bravery by, by soldiers, cooperation can emerge, and even without any explicit commitments, just because of frequent interaction, which permits cooperative behavior to be rewarded and failures to operate to be punished. So this is an example of reciprocal altruism in an environment in which repeated interaction occurs. It was these ideas which influenced my uh, work, Civic Conservatism, published in 1995. That went beyond talking about community to see the importance of embodying that idea in real-life institutions. That's what gives communities some backbone and shape. Uh, civic Conservatism was my attempt to carry forward a conservative tradition valuing institutions because I realized that institutions are places where people interact with, uh, with each other sufficiently frequently for cooperation to emerge as a rational strategy. By then, Tony Blair was going on about community, but it didn't seem to me that either Tony Blair, or if I may say so, uh, Gordon Brown, really got the significance of institutions. Uh, they much prefer to talk about values. But values are not worth much unless they are embodied and sustained in real-life institutions which shape how people behave. Perhaps I can give you an example from my current responsibilities. I remember going uh, last year to have lunch with some members of Cambridge University's governing body, and they told me that they were regularly being phoned by a top official from the Treasury asking them why they hadn't yet changed their governance arrangements at Cambridge so as to meet Gordon Brown's views on how they should be organized. I think this shows an extraordinary failure to understand the proper job of a finance ministry and the need for self-restraint so as to leave room for other institutions to govern themselves. I'm sure that Sir Howard Davis would have a deft way of fending off such presumption by our old department. But, and this is a very important but, and this is where the debate has moved on, Simply providing space for institutions is not enough on its own. Even in Axelrod's own repeated game, cooperation in, is not inevitable. Tit for tat is not the only solution. We will not necessarily fall into the uh, good equilibrium. I mentioned, talking about the driving game, that there was a less obvious third equilibrium. We know a community can drive on the left. We know it could drive on the right. However, there's a third equilibrium. What if drivers toss a coin each morning and randomly choose a side of the road on which to drive? If everyone else is driving randomly, assuming that I'm driving as well, I might as well join in. So that is a Nash equilibrium, but it's hardly uh, desirable. It is a, 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 a fallacy to think that just because in the one-shot prisoner's dilemma there was only one solution, then okay, when you move to the repeated game, there's only one equilibrium. The difference being that it's a cooperative one. However, in that is not the case. In repeated games, you will find that there are many possible uh, Nash equilibria. And you can find that cooperation can be fragile as well. Even if you have achieved a, a cooperative um, outcome, it may not 
be sustained because of external events. One of the things that the generals in the chateau behind the front line were doing in the First World War was moving the troops around frequently so as to try to break up the cooperative strategies that were emerging between their infantrymen in the front line and the enemy's infantrymen. And we should always remember that whatever cooperative strategies there emerge at the micro level, the Great War above all be remembered for men sadly, tragically being, short, short, being slaughtered in their millions. So government can't just stand aside and say cooperation will emerge naturally. This is a point that was so neatly put by Francis Fukuyama. Let me quote. There is a certain assumption that civil society, once having been damaged by the excessive ambition of government, will simply spring back to life like brine shrimp that have been freeze-dried. Now you add water to them and they become shrimp again. It's not something that you can take for granted. And that, I think, is a very important message. Now, before we go any further into, into the argument about the role of government, let me very briefly take a step back and talk about evolutionary biology pioneered by E.O. Wilson. Now, this is emphatically not social Darwinism, which has done such damage by misapplying the model of evolution to social change to justify a world of devil take the hindmost. But game theory and evolutionary theory are kind of intellectual partners. We can use evolution to help us understand game theory by making it literally just a very natural phenomenon. Um, and I've just uh, shown how we cannot assume we will automatically get cooperative behavior, but looking at the animal kingdom, we can see circumstances in which cooperation clearly can pay off and does emerge. As we know from all the best horror movies, vampire bats need regular supplies of fresh blood. They've had a bad press, but the time has come to change all that. They have been misunderstood. We have now discovered that the vampire bats which come back from a night's hunting with lots of blood regurgitate some to share it with the other vampire bats who were less successful. This is not just restricted to their immediate relatives, and this behavior enables the colony to thrive. In Professor Binmore's words, although vampire genes are selfish, reciprocal sharing turns out to be sustainable as an equilibrium in the vampire game of life. So there you are. Vampire bats are caring, sharing creatures after all. Now, there's obviously one objection to all this. You may think that anthropomorphism should be left to Walt Disney. And you may think that this whole school of thought is da getting dangerously close to that cardinal error about which I know Ken has warned in the past of moving from is to ought. But our ultimate authority on these matters should surely be the great David Attenborough. And I love his nature films. And one reason for is the way he makes sense of animal behavior by treating it as, in some sense, rational. Now, uh, uh, under the stress of evolution, it actually looks as though genes are actively trying to maximize they fit their fitness. It looks as if, in some sense, they're selfish. We know that they have no such motives, of course, but it looks like that. So much so, in fact, that much of the work of biologists such as John Maynard Smith has been in showing how the evolutionary process can be modeled as though the animals were trying out sets of genes to see which ones work out. I think there's something Aristotelian about evolutionary theory because it focuses on the fitness of things. 
This, fit, this quality of fitness is deeply satisfying, and I think it helps us to understand something both about um, evolutionary theory and about a game theory. If it isn't too far-fetched, I would say fitness is the quality possessed by, say, a leopard in its natural habitat, where no improvement in its genetic makeup is possible. And a craftsman who seems to have mastered the material in which he works, as described in Richard Sennett's excellent new book. In both cases, there is a kind of rightness to what they do. This um, approach, this biological approach to culture and to ethics, can help us to understand how and why we do things. For example, The Embrace of Fatherhood is a fascinating book on how fathers behave in the animal kingdom and was taken up by fatherhood campaigners in the United States of America. They tell recalcitrant young men who fathered a child and will not take any responsibility for it, look at what a male emperor penguin does to protect its egg during the Antarctic winter. It is an unusual way of getting young men to take their responsibilities seriously, but in America they're giving it a try. Now, you may feel that, uh, as so often, we have so far heroically rediscovered what Adam Smith and David Hume had already worked out. And in fact, uh, Ken Dinmore is avowedly a Humean. He's content with what he calls skyhooks, resting on our morality on injunctions from above, is somewhere between Hume and Dawkins. And like David Hume, he takes very limited assumptions about human behavior and generates important and interesting conclusions from them. What is heroic about this whole research program is how far uh, people such as Professor Binmore and others such as Maynard Smith or Matt Ridley get with very modest assumptions. In this respect, it actually mirrors the intellectual structure of neoclassical economics, generating powerful results from a very limited account of human nature. For David Hume, of course, the model was Isaac Newton, with an elaborate um, body of philosophical theory based on very modest foundation. Now, some may dislike this reductionism. Life doesn't feel like this. And having escaped from the caricature of rational economic man, why be in such a rush to embrace an account which seems to have quite a lot in common with it? But I think the challenge is to see how broad an account of human behavior this model with its very limited uh, assumptions uh, can offer. Humans have got beyond vampire bats because we have developed much more sophisticated tools for cooperation to work. Uh, Professor Finmore's work has focused heavily on these tools, and I cannot do them justice in this speech. But work by Novak, for example, has shown that the amount of reciprocity we're willing to undertake with another person is, is related to the likelihood of our ever seeing them again. The more likely they are to disappear, the less likely we are to help them. So here is the first stage in our process of building altruism. We need to have institutions where people will meet and mingle time and again. However, in a large society, we cannot keep count on meeting people again directly. For that, we need to have a system which uses reputation. Reputation allows us to enjoy indirect reciprocity. If I punish another person by refusing to help them because they refuse to help another person again, we can build a virtuous circle. However, this, of course, requires that their reputation be known to me and their reputation be good. But I think the importance of this type of reputation is shown in the particular effectiveness of small institutions. 
an extraordinarily high proportion of social science experiments involve experiments with the behavior of US college students. They are the lab rats of the social sciences. So it's no surprise that one of the best pieces of evidence comes from student dorms. It shows that you get much lower levels of petty theft, for example, in small halls of residence. My own researches showed how much worse problems of discipline and behavior are in larger schools. In other words, the popular preference for small institutions has a clear basis in fact, and there is a theory to explain it. We are learning how many reputations people can hold in their heads at any one time. Institutions which rely on peer group effects are more efficient if they limit the number of people involved to fewer than 150 people at a time, which is what some esti experts estimate is the limit of our neurological capacity. But how do you get beyond 150? Uh, the next move is obviously to move uh, into much wider levels of reciprocity. One way in which you can do this is through the use of customs. If we have a custom of open reciprocity, where I help people regardless of whether or not they'll have a chance to reciprocate, it will function so long as my friends and colleagues uh, may, uh, force me to maintain the custom. Observance of these customs operates as a kind of bank enabling us to build up deposits of cooperative behavior, but going well beyond a narrow barter economy. And this doesn't involve conscious calculation. We end up with intuitive reciprocal impulses, and neurologists are learning more and more about these reciprocating impulses, which we appear to develop in childhood, shaped by experience of being brought up in the family. And this behind, lies behind many of the fascinating examples of persuasion which Robert Cialdini has analyzed. A lot of persuasion works by creating a sense of reciprocity. It's what the Harry Krishna are doing when they give us a flower for free, but promptly expect something from us in return. And I think this is a crucial insight which can help us with building mechanisms to dealing effectively with members of the public, one of the challenges of modern government. Take, for example, a problem which affects restaurateurs and the NHS alike, people who make a booking and then do not attend. One tiny change in approach by the telephonist can have a big impact. After the telephonist has, has given the time and asked the customer or the patient to let them know if he or she cannot attend, the telephonist should then pause. That gap in the conversation is filled by the customer or patient saying, okay. And if that is said, there is a much greater chance of feeling bound by a commitment, so you phone to let the restaurant or doctor know if you're not becoming. Now, I realize that we need to go uh, even further because such reciprocity is not the whole story. Sometimes our transactions are one-off, so we lack enforcement mechanisms. If we're unhappy about a car or a house which we bought, what do we do? Threaten not to buy a subsequent house from that person is unlikely to act as a deterrent. This is where we need intermediaries and other organizations uh, which will provide a mechanism for redress. The General Medical Council's role is to prevent doctors taking shortcuts in, and endangering patients by enabling us to complain to people who do know enough. And you can go further. Sometimes, as with the alumni assumption uh, associations in medical schools, a reciprocity allows less obvious enforcement mechanisms, rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. Uh, in this case, through the mechanism of dinner party conversation. And damages to one's reputation by the formal institutions can lead to 
punishment as well by the informal ones. Well, let me conclude by drawing what seem to me to be some of the lessons from this extraordinary uh, rich research program. Some of them chime with old conservative insights. We must be cautious and skeptical about what government can and cannot do. The process of cultural evolution means there's often wisdom in traditions. Sometimes the threads holding our society together are delicate and hard to distinguish. But it doesn't just reinforce some of those comfortable conservative ideas, it also has some challenging new perspectives. First of all, it clarifies what the role of government is. It can help us shift between equilibria which already exist. If it wishes to shift on to new equilibria, it has some tools for creating new equilibria. It doesn't tell us what a good equilibrium or a bad equilibrium is. That is a normative judgment for politicians. But it does help us think through what the available options are. And as Ken Binmore puts it in one of his most powerful passages, love and duty are not the cement of modern societies, although they may be the mortar that holds the bricks of primitive societies together. Modern society is like a dry stone wall. Its stones do not need cement. Each stone is held in place by its neighbors, and it in turn holds its neighbors in place. We should think of society as being like a dry stone wall or in David Hume's image as an, a masonry arch held together without social cement. The task of government is not to pour some social glue uh, to hold it together, but to create the environment in which the social norms and institutions which lead to reciprocity can flourish. And it helps us understand what those institutions are and, by, and how they work. By using game theory and neurology, we can help real understand what, uh, how reciprocity works and how enforcement mechanisms work. A role for government must be in protecting the institutions sustaining beneficial equilibria and taking apart the institutions sustaining malign ones. There will be disagreement about which equilibria are which and politicians need to be clear about the choices that they make. However, uh, if government is to maintain reciprocal altruism and cooperation, I think this approach helps us to better to understand what is at stake. So I think that this exciting new interdisciplinary endeavor is helping us improve our understanding of society so that governments will be able genuinely to foster a better society based on stronger institutions. Thank you very much indeed. I think that was absolutely superb. Never a dull moment. Made me feel as if I were a laboratory rat <laughs> um, following the rationality equilibria involved here. One interesting side comment. I mean, I'm totally confused because there are so many things I want to put together. Is, however, that the dry stone wall image was one of Oakeshott's favorite images to describe the character of history. He believed that the business of a historian was to find the bits of evidence so that they fitted together, the evidence being evidence of circumstantial events 
and they fitted together like a dry stone wall without the need for um, uh, generalization of any kind. So I thought that was absolutely superb. Um, I have lots of questions I think that I will eventually develop out of it that I might like to ask David. But for the moment, what I want to do is to throw the floor open to you and see what questions or comments you may have. And we have here a microphone which will help people to, um, uh, to um, uh, make themselves clear. So we have two. Mrs. Thatcher's government did a number of significant things. Um, in my view, some of them were very good and some of them were very bad. Um, obviously, for the sake of an interesting discussion tonight, it's more interesting to focus on those that were bad, um, and particularly those that were bad from the point of view of our understanding of what a good decision applying um, economics and game theory to decision-making. I, I can give you some suggestions for things that were bad, but I'd be interested perhaps first to hear um, your views, uh, um, given your new insights, what, what you think were the major policy errors of Mr. Thatcher's government. Um, I think that we there is always this we, you're endlessly wrestling with this uh, dilemma of good or bad cooperation and I had a recent meeting with the TUC and I remember they made the point that these nasty trade unions that used to mess up the free operation of the labor market and suddenly become these nice, friendly societies that were going to be fundamental to improving charitable welfare provision, but weren't they historically the same institution? Um, and I think we underestimated the disruptive effect on communities of economic change and the, and the danger, therefore, of getting stuck in a sort of high unemployment in the new high unemployment equilibrium in certain parts of the country from which there are communities that are still trying to escape. Uh, I think you can also say uh, that when it came to local government and local government finance, we endlessly wrestled with the dilemma of how much uh, local decision taking you could really permit. I remember a conversation I had with Margaret Thatcher when the militants had seized control of Liverpool Council. And I gave an impeccably Hayekian argument. I said to her, look, these people, uh, been, the councillors have been voted in by the people of Liverpool. That's a democratic choice of the people of Liverpool. They must face the consequences of that choice. Uh, and she disagreed with me. And her argument was, Liverpool is a great English city, and there will come a point when the conditions in Liverpool get so bad that a British government in a unitary state cannot simply stand by. So we have to confront that. And secondly, she said, you can, the problem is you can put together a, an election-winning coalition in Liverpool of people who do not have to pay any local taxes, and that that is a, therefore, the local democratic choice in Liverpool is uh, inadequate because you've got representation without taxation. And that, of course, was the origins of the community charge. Uh, so I think we... We, the, the community charge was an, uh, a mistaken attempt to wrestle with a genuine problem. Uh, but there are other lessons as well, but I think that's, that's probably enough breast beating to be getting on with. Yes, I think perhaps we ought not to allow Margaret Thatcher to be a, a, um, 
an irrelevance to what has been said. There's one person over there. Okay, I won't mention Margaret Thatcher. Um, David, thank you. Very I good. wanted to ask also about the role of the state and your vision mm -hmm. of that, because it seemed um, to me quite particular, you know, we had kind of government agents intervening in institutions mm. or, uh, you know, state intervention as the kind of glue in a wall. But, you know, for many people, maybe the state would be, and state collectivism would be the largest example of a dry stone wall um, and itself um, perhaps a single example of this kind of cooperation as we've seen it evolve. Um, I mean, many, mm -hmm. many of the intellectual traditions mm -hmm. you draw on yep. um, go very far in explaining behaviours like tax compliance, like public attitudes towards benefits. And I, I wonder, is there a challenge there to you? I mean, I, I think you're right. The, this kind of cooperation does challenge perhaps the kind of neoliberal basis um, of uh, former conservative thought. Does it also challenge the kind of libertarian basis of that as well? I wonder if there's a kind of deeper challenge to the tradition in that. Yeah, I think it does. And where, uh, and I recognize, I'm, I'm, I tried in the lecture this evening to recognize more explicitly that you can't simply say the state will get out of the way and then all these, everything will then be fine. There is a legitimate role for government. And I was trying to draw on the, this, uh, uh, these lines of thinking to help us define it. Uh, as to an example of, of what that might be, something else that I'm doing a lot of thinking about at the moment is, the inter is intergenerational equity, the intergenerational contract, maintaining the contract between the generations. And that's the most, and I think as the two most important institutions we've got, the family and the state, both seem to me to be incredibly important in maintaining an intergenerational contract. That's what we do individually within families, but a state um, in financing distribution to the very young through education and benefits for families and to the very old through pensions and the NHS is, seems to me, is clearly contributing to maintaining an intergenerational so that seems to me a legitimate role, but that's perhaps a subject for another lecture. <laughs> right, there's a person over there, yes. Thank you, yes. Is, it, is this working? Uh, Anthony Barnett from Open Democracy. Um, David, uh, you said at the end that you thought the role of politicians uh, was to create the norms and institutions that would uh, provide a sustainable equilibrium for society. Um, well, I, I've just been listening earlier as well to the Prime Minister uh, giving a speech about uh, migration, you may have seen the headlines on it already, where he took very uh, clearly um, a quite opposite point of view, stressing uh, the need for uh, a new equilibrium in British society, if you can put it like that, to use your language. Uh, and stressing exclusively uh, the role of values mm. in creating and defining yeah. citizenship yeah. to achieve this. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I think the argument of having uh, institutions which then allow people to be different is a very compelling mm -hmm. argument. But I wonder if you could talk about what norms or uh, you would create, what institutions you would create, and how you would um, uh, how. What, what basis of refusing the, of, of opposing the government's uh, uh, 
citizenship and immigration policy have followed from, um, you know, from, from the, the political philosophy of your group? Um, well, I haven't... No, I, I don't, I'm not really familiar. I've only seen the headlines on what Gordon Brown said today, I think. Um, and I don't really understand the detail of his proposals. But let me make a wider point, which is, I think, authentically Oakeshottian. Uh, I think it's, this might even have been, uh, I may, this may even come from a recollection of something he wrote. Why do, why do we have so much sort of, why so much of the classical liberal tradition to be found in England? Uh, why do we have John, why did we have John Locke? And the argument that, is that we had John Locke, not because John Locke was a great theorist working out a set of values, but because what he wrote was an abridgment of the customs and practices of the society that he saw around him and which he distilled. So it wasn't that, so we had civil society and a set of institutions that had the effect of protecting um, individuals' uh, uh, area for free action and that gave rise to theorists of personal freedom. And one of the things that um, I'm wrestling with and that Ken Binmore wrestles with is Instead of starting with these abstract values, which Ken calls skyhooks, but I as a conservative like to think I was more rooted, but instead of starting with these abstract values and having kind of deductive reasoning and Gordon Brown saying these are our values and we must then impose them, instead let's look at organically at the institutions which have grown up in our country and the way they have functioned. And again, going back to what we're saying in the generation equity, I think that the most important single one is the unusual structure of the English family, and I think that our family system probably helps explain the flourishing of a particular sort of civil society, which in turn helps to explain why we are the home of classical liberalism. And uh, whenever I hear uh, Gordon Brown talk about social mobility, I want to think about how schools work and how universities work. Whenever I hear him talk about fairness, I want to think about how you could reform the NHS to make it work better. And I'm just very wary of this retreat into windy abstractions. Um, yeah, no, I think we'd better not because we have a number of others. There's one there, and then in terms of uh, equity between the wings of the lecture theatre, we'll come over here. Philip Harris, I think you would say that the statements by the government sort of indications of Britishness mm -hmm. are utterly stupid. Mm. Like the American rhetoric, mm. this is the greatest country in the world and the flag. Yeah. But one thing that I learned recently, I think, emphasizes really what you're saying, non-governmental things, and it relates to the founding of University College London, mm. London University. Mm. Um, one of the founders was Isaac Lyon Goldschmidt, and I think as a result of him, trainee rabbis, it was agreed, would have to take secular subjects at University College London. And, and this was very much, I think, a way of Britishness applying uh, to Jews, and I think it's very relevant to the present. This is a totally non-governmental thing, um, which I think meant that rabbis were not allowed to be cut off from the general society, they had to take secular subjects at university college. I think this is something relevant to today. I yeah. Think it's something yeah. To what you're 
Yeah, I mean, we do have in this country this extraordinary richness of civil society and these institutions, many of which have a long history. And that part, that, I mean, that is what, I mean, I know this is not a new insight, but that's what I tried to capture when I wrote Civic Conservatism. And the, my view, what I'm trying to understand is why we've got so many of those in Britain, which in, and how that helps to explain the subsequent emergence of a liberal tradition. And my view is that the origins of this can be traded, traced back into a family structure, which itself is more unusual than we recognize. And, when, and so when Gordon Brown talks about values, uh, I want to think about the family arrangements that sustain them and, and the uh, institutions that protect them. And there was a marvelous statement by, I mean, Anthony, I'm sure, knows this. There was someone who, I think it, I uh, can't remember which 19th century constitutional writer said something like, he would mu put much more trust in habeas corpus than hundreds of statements of human freedom. We have built it up through things like habeas corpus, and I'd much rather trust habeas corpus than trust some abstract statement of human rights. Very good. Moving it. I wonder if you have any comments about uh, international cooperation. Um, I'm thinking in the, in the context of climate change, where mm -hmm. Many parts of the world may view that the, the more affluent section of the world has been exhibiting non-cooperative behavior for many generations. We have a dire need to move rapidly to more cooperative behavior. Yeah, well, I think there, there is some really interesting institutional design going on where I don't claim to be an expert, but there's a legitimate role for government and emissions trading uh, is, I think, a, a fascinating example of something where you clearly do require government to set up um, uh, institutional arrangements and design them at work. And there have been some failures in institutional design. And something else that I've learned from Ken Binmore is that you, know, you can do a lot more to model these and test them and pilot them than has conventionally been done. So you can, we should be able to use these insights to get better at institutional design and designing institutional arrangements such as uh, tradable um, uh, pollution permits or carbon emission trading seems to be a very good example. So you get a cooperative outcome, but through institutional design and competitive pressures. I've got a question about the fascinating insight about game theory, which I've studied could you speak a little more slowly? Sorry, the map. Doctor, have you heard of a game theorist now at the University of Toronto? famous one, Dr. Arito Rappaport. He's a leading peace theorist. And he's some of his books like he's trapped in conflict, as he wrote many years ago. He feels that this can be used consciously to improve political behavior in a normative sense. I haven't heard of this particular thinker, and do you think that's possible in terms of your I have read of I haven't read any of his books, I'm afraid, um, though I have come across them in the literature. The, um, there is a point. What this, the thing that, there are several problems. I mean, let's say what the problems are. Okay. One thing is, it's much better at quite specific, modeling quite specific interactions. So it was quite good at nuclear deterrence, which is well designed, and it's quite good for auction design. So it's quite good at those very specific circumstances, and it can particularly help politicians in those circumstances. Something that 
politicians deep down are wary about is being asked to be too explicit about exactly what their social welfare function is. And it makes it very clear, well, quite stark about what it is that politicians do. You have to define the equilibrium you're trying to get to. You have to define your social welfare function, and then people can go off and design institutions. In my experience, often in politics, you don't particularly want to be that stark about exactly what the objective is. And as soon as you are less clear about the objective, then it gets much harder to use the instruments, the intellectual equipment that is now being developed. There's a question, oh, terrific, we've got a microphone up there. I thought you might have to scout. I hope it works. Uh, so the question is, how does the problem in changing optimal strategy affect things? Two case studies, uh, the changing demographic of the population with uh, an in increasing uh, age of workforce such that in 30 years' time there's going to be a different strategy to optimize wealth yep. than, than there is currently. How does it, uh, and the other one is climate change, uh, a game theory study just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which, which attempts to reconcile this, the optimal strategy now with the optimal strategy in 50 years' time. And the, the, the conclusions are that each institution, each state, puts in just enough to ensure that the world will fail. Whereas if, they, if, if everyone co cooperated, then, then you save the world and everyone makes less money. However, in the short term, you, you can do enough so that no change is seen, but that it builds up over time such that the strategy changes, such that the topography of the, of the landscape alters in that you don't get at the equilibrium, you end up in the wrong place. And how can government reconcile these changes in optimal strategy? Um, <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that demographic change, is, again, something else I'm thinking about at the moment, demographic change is surprisingly disruptive of the intergenerational contract. Changes in cohort size change the intergenerational contract by much more than is conventionally recognized. So that, for example, if you have a rule that you're going to balance the budget over the economic cycle, to choose an example at random, but current economic policy, then that which looks like a neutral policy, if you are a great big birth cohort, then while, when you're all bunched up in the labor market all producing, you benefit from unusually low tax rates. And when you all retire and need higher public expenditure, if program, public expenditure commitments remain stable, the, gen the small generation cohort coming along behind you has to pay higher taxes. So I think there's quite an interesting task of thinking through what intergenerational equity is when there are changes in cohort size. Um, I, I don't think I can go... There is another set of questions about discount rates, which emerges from the Stern report, and it seems to me another... an implicit assumption in quite a bit of what I was saying, and in order for any kind of cooperative strategy to work, is people have to value the future. They have, if you live completely for the present, a lot of these games, and it's another, sometimes an implicit, it's not made as explicit as it should be, it's actually quite an important assumption for a lot of these games to work. And uh, 
the, the discount rate you need for valuing the future. So you put some, so that you can, you can actually learn to cooperate, even in the simplest tit for tat. Uh, I think that's another very interesting area, but I'm sorry not to rise to the challenge of answering your question properly this evening. But it is something <laughs> I'm trying to think about. Very good. Uh, there's a, a question up there. Hi. <coughs> um, you've placed the state in a central role in terms of defining the, the um, optimal environment for positive, or shall we say, opt uh, optimal national equilibrium. Equilibriums. Um, what the question I have regarding this is how does the, the state obtain sufficient feedback with regards to changes in order to have an effective early detection, early response of whether those changes are actually going to lead to a desirable equilibrium or an undesirable one? That is a, I mean, that's a very good, uh, that's a very good question. I think I'd give you two types of answers. The first thing, which is um, where I just think technically we can improve the, the quality of policy making, is that it is possible to model this type of behaviour. Although, like the, the gentleman who asked the question earlier, uh, my maths is limited and I can't follow the. Uh, the game theorists as they become uh, more and more mathematical. It's clear that they have the capacity, there is considerable prescriptive power there. And whilst, I mean, when I arrived in the Treasury years ago, we had the great big Treasury computer doing economic modelling, but it's still very bad, it's something that Ken Dinmore has called for, at modelling policy using the insights of game theory. So that's one type of answer. The second thing is that in a we should not be embarrassed about saying one important job for government is to follow rather than to lead. And that the, uh, that image from James, Fitzjames Stephen of putting the seal on the molten wax does seem to me to capture quite an important thing that government does, that, that you can't completely change the culture single-handed, but as the culture changes, you can work with it, almost in a... In a another sort of iteration and the, the ban on, the, on smoking in, uh, in, in, in public spaces was, a, was the culmination, you could see it as a culmination of 20 years of um, everything from health advertising campaigns to increasing alcohol taxes um, and more and more requirements on GPs as to what they tell their patients about the dangers of smoking. In other words it's the culmination of a series of measures that themselves changed the culture so that it became, as I said in my speech, a largely self-enforcing policy. And as I said in the speech, if you died it 30 years ago, I just think you'd have had mass uh, refusal to comply with the law of the sort that Ralph Harris, the late Ralph Harris tried when they first started banning smoking in trains. It would not have been a feasible thing to have done then so the government can can only act in so far as it is working with changes in the culture that have already happened. Very good. There's a lady there. We're getting now towards the end. There are perhaps two more. Uh, there's a lady there who would like to uh, ask a question. No, no, we don't allow shouting here. We always shout. What do you believe, as you talked earlier about, do you think we have a unique family in this country? 
do you think that is and what do you think that will be when that changes with the fairies, changing demographics that have already been discussed? Well, this is part... The, the lecture was already too long, and this was, the other, this was another part of it that... Uh, that I'm I talked about the... I talked about the game theory and I talked about the uh, sort of evolutionary biology. I didn't particularly talk about the neurology, but that seems to me to be where there's quite a lot of evidence coming in on how plastic a child's mind is, especially in the early years. And uh, I do think that you could argue that, that one of the connections here is that you first experience forms of cooperation within the family, in your, literally your, in your formative years, and that the different, and that experiencing it in different family structures may have quite an important impact on the structure of society. I mean, a thinker who um, has a great influence on me is Emmanuel Todd, who sort of traces these very ambitiously. Now, England has, an, a new, has small families, has nuclear Families and these are surprisingly rare in the even in the Western world. Certainly, nuclear families where there is also the absolute right of each generation to decide what they do with their property. I mean, people underestimate the difference between sort of English inheritance law and French inheritance law. French inheritance law has underneath it a completely different assumption about the family, in which the property passes automatically from generation to generation as a sort of sustained project. Now, I don't, I think the change, I don't believe that, sorry, the reason for all that history is I, okay, we've got, for example, the rise of uh, lone parents, but I think that this English family form is deep-seated and long-lasting, although, and if anything, the shift to even smaller families as you get to single parents is a, um, just fits in within that model. Uh, the fantasy is a surprising number of people think that at some point in the past, England had extended families and we all had great sort of multi-generational living and the family used to be different. From Peter, from researches of Peter Lauset and Alan McFarlane and others, we know that that has never been English family structure. Uh, and that I do think is, um, it's an, again, a subject for another lecture. But I think you can link that to the development of uh, children and the values that they absorb in their early years in turn related to our social and political structure. There's a lady <coughs> over there, and I think that had better be the last question. Oh. All I'm right. So I'm sorry, I'm, <coughs> I'm not a lady. <laughs> um, I'm just a tiny little, a little bit concerned, Mr. Willett, that year after year, for the last umpteen years, that politicians seem to have an increase in increasing inclination to interfere with all our affairs. Mm -hmm. And I understand the point that you're making so eloquently this evening, but how do you turn that tide back? Well, what I'm, what I'm trying to do uh, is, first of all, explain why a conservative is not a libertarian and why there are legitimate roles for government. And it seems to me that that is a uh, sort of important sort of exposed flank in conservatism that has to be covered because there are some people who think that is the authentic conservatism that manifests itself. And one 
thing you can get from game theory is some very useful and clear understandings of what it is that governments do. But secondly, and this was what civic conservatism was about, what I still believe is that it's clear that institutions can do a really good job themselves of providing environments in which cooperative behavior flourishes, and that you are, you should um, be wary of, of interfering with institutions that have a, a long history of self-government. And, and the university is a classic example. The university has been around in this country for centuries. The LSE has recently celebrated its centenary. There is a no reason why a group of civil servants sitting at the Department for Education should know how to run the LSE. And um, literally, I mean, this is a real-life example, my local, a local golf club in my constituency, uh, now, the government is very suspicious of golf clubs because it thinks they are repositories of sort of white, racist, disabled attitudes. So you've got a club that says, we want to, we are a self-regulating club and want to decide who becomes our members. We, we don't want people to become members who play golf so badly they'll mess up our greens, and we don't want people who will fight at the bar. You have to have some, you have to have some capacity to determine the rules of membership of our golf club. And we've got the government that is saying, if you apply for a grant to build a, an indoor practice range, which is not simply for the club, it's to be used by local schools as well, but it's to be on their side. As soon as you do that, we are going to require that you remove most of the conditions for membership of your golf club so that the, your golf club is open to people of all backgrounds. And we think your requirement that you have to be a competent golfer and that you have a sort of three-month induction period, which the club says just so that the people don't they don't have people who will uh, literally will be violent in the bar. We think that that is a disguised form, is hiding a lot of prejudices which we as a government are going to destroy. I mean, this is, this is a real, these are the kind of things that happen, and you can just sense all the, pre that is just a tiny example of a battle that's being fought all the time. And I'm trying to say why it is reasonable to say to the golf club, you've always got to comply with absolutely disability discrimination, race discrimination, but there comes a point when the government trying to change the rules for membership of this golf club is an excessive level of interference in what should be part of our civil society. Very good. Very good. We could clearly go on for a long, long time, but we'd better not. I've discovered um, a new role model, namely the vampire bat. I shall not despise them henceforth. And all I have to do now is simply to ask you to join with me in thanking David for that superb performance.